This week's Rum Doings is brought to you by Boots the Chemist, your one-stop shop for all your homeopathic remedy needs. Uh, if you'd like to stay in touch with Rum Doings, um, please check out rumdoings.com or email us at podcast at rumdoings.com. Find us on iTunes and all the other stuff. Thanks very much and enjoy this extremely special and obviously very long episode. Hello. Good morning. It's um, episode 63... 40, 50 and 60 all at once because it is a very special episode of Rum Doings because... It's a simulcast episode because we have with us in the London studio, the London studio. today um, somebody who needs no introduction so I'll introduce him. Um, he is a homeopath to the stars, he does Reiki crystal healing. In his spare time he works with big pharmaceutical companies to extend in a trivial way their generic molecules so that they can be repatented. Um, have I left anything out? I know you work very hard for the Scientologists. Um, I, I think that's about it, isn't it? Dr. Benjamin Goldacre. Hi, thanks for that uh, introduction. Yes, now let's talk about libel laws, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> the tradition of this podcast to libel people as much as we can. We've yet to have any friends, See, you thought you, you thought you wanted to reform libel, but now you don't. Well, I, I regard most of the libelous things that have been said about me as pretty farcical, so that's, uh, you know, I'm happy with that. Excellent. What sort of libel do you tend to get? Um, I suppose the well, the quacks get very, very angry. It's an interesting example of projection, I suppose. The quacks basically um, pretend that I work for Big Pharma mm-hmm. to mock quacks. Now, obviously, I mean, I write more about the crimes of Big Pharma than I do about the crimes yeah. of quacks. Yeah, but those are ignored. Usually, of course, yeah, yeah, obviously. Well, it's an interesting example of cherry-picking. But also, I think it's interesting because, I mean, I'm not very sort of psychodynamically oriented as a human being, but it is interesting... Neither that, am I. <laughs> Well, he would say that. Yes. Um, but it is interesting that people who people who make money by selling pills by distorting the evidence can only it can only interpret what you say about evidence as being well. You're only saying that because you make money by selling pills, and that's why right, yeah. you have these views. They're all in the same club and don't realise it. Well, yeah, but also they imagine that everybody else is in the same club. Like they imagine that everybody else can only be motivated mm. in their expressions about the evidence for the efficacy of a given treatment by whether or not they personally make money out of it. Mm. Um, well, th- that's the problem. I think that you often make the point. I think you made the point in bad science and elsewhere that um, you know whether the big corporation is selling sugar tablets, vitamin tablets, or uh, an antibiotic. You've, you. The, the modus operandi can be very similar and the and the criticisms between themselves can be, you know, they can be attacking one another whilst doing very similar things often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're all cut from the same cloth. Big Pharma mm. and Quacks definitely do use exactly the same tricks to distort evidence in order to flog products. Big Pharma use slightly more um, sort of sophisticated techniques to obfuscate on data mm. because they are... They're trying to bamboozle doctors, and doctors are marginally more switched on about what constitutes a fair test in a yeah. trial and what <coughs> cherry picking looks like. So you have to you have to put a little bit more effort in to mm. confuse them, but not actually that much. And and also, I mean, the thing that I'm increasingly finding interesting is that the the regulatory failures that you get around quackery perfectly map onto the regulatory failures that you get around. Um, the pharmaceutical industry. It's just that once again, um, you know, what you see with regulatory failure around quackery are the sort of the most pantomime 
theatrical, well, ludicrous. Yes. You know, you're allowed to make claims on the pill bottle for homeopathy for things that are literally just sugar pills mm-hmm. because of political pressure that's brought to bear by Prince Charles, by politicians who are terrified of their constituents who are, you know want to be able to have sugar pills on the NHS. Mm-hmm. But similarly, you, you see the same political pressures to distort... Um, uh, regulation of the pharmaceutical industry, but just in a slightly more tedious and complicated way. And I, you know, I hope that. Um, but in a sense, doesn't that make it almost more dangerous? Because frankly, it's actually quite easy to debunk and to deal with homeopathy. Frankly, the best way to deal with homeopathy is just explain it to people. A lot of people <laughs> kind of they they put it in the same basket as you know herbs and and various natural therapies which may or may have may not have various efficacies which are debatable but at least they're debatable so they they bundle in the same basket but when you actually explain to somebody well when what do you think homeopathy means well it means lovely herbs and nature doesn't it no it actually doesn't 10 minutes later they either don't believe you which probably say well go and look at their you know go and look at their data themselves or they say yes that is nonsense Surely it's more dangerous when you've got that more subtle sort of manipulation that you discuss that's designed to bamboozle doctors. So I don't really care about quacks or homeopathy. I mean, I I, I use homeopathy mainly as a teaching tool for for talking about evidence-based medicine. Because homeopathy is (coughs) the perfect teaching tool for EBM. It's a pill which seems to work better than placebo, even though... It doesn't actually work better than placebo, but it can seem to work better than placebo Mm. if you only look at trials which are methodologically flawed in such a way that they're likely to give you a false positive result. So trials that are flawed by design, they're poorly blinded, poorly randomised, whatever. Or it can give you a a, a false positive result if you only cherry pick the positive results from all of the trials that have ever been done. And, And... in that sense, it's the most extreme version of the problem which you're trying to avoid with, with all of evidence-based medicine, which is treatments which are ineffective compared to the next best currently available treatment appearing to be more effective than they really are. And so, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that, that outright quackery like homeopathy is, is necessarily important in the sense that lots of people die from it. I, I do think it's very useful as a teaching tool, and that's what the whole of the column is about, really. It's about you know using the gimmick of people getting bits of science wrong mm. as an opportunity to talk about how to do the basics correctly. Yeah. You know, mm. we, you know, I'm not actually that bothered that a front-page story in The Times incorrectly says the number of children using cocaine has doubled. I am interested in being able to use the fact that they got that wrong to explain Bonferroni correction for multiple comparisons mm. on the news pages of a national <laughs> newspaper. Yes. And I don't think I'd be able to do that if it wasn't attached to the gimmick of yes, taking of the piss out of the Times for getting something wrong on their, on their front page. But I, I think also um, quackery is, is, is interesting because it's a useful window into the role of medicine in culture and in our society um, and, and also um, a window into you know how mainstream medicine is perceived and how doctors and the whole practice of medicine and, and healing is, is perceived because there is something really interesting about the fact that for example 
maybe a generation ago, the, the way that doctors practiced changed. It, yeah. it went from, from frank paternalism, you know, communication skills training for junior doctors used to be how not to tell your patient they were dying of cancer. Yeah. <laughs> I've been re-listening to Doctor in the House recently from the 60s. Fantastic. On, on well, Radio Richard 7. Yes, really and it's, great. And it's, it's, it's very interesting, sort of historical and sociologically speaking, listening to what was expected when you were playing a doctor. Absolutely. A junior one and then the senior one whom you had to emulate and this patrician... Yeah. Attitude was astonishing. False reassurance, paternalism, everything's going to be fine, take this treatment. If, if at, the, at the very most, for an explanation, here is a willfully bamboozling yes. explanation with inappropriate use of technical terms in order to reinforce the power dynamic. Don't between. worry, we know exactly what's going on. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what I find really interesting is that, that, that mainstream medicine kind of turned its back on that whole persona as a mm. doctor. I mean, there are, people still have, you know, occasional doctors who yes, are assholes, and that's fine. I mean, actually, interestingly, um, it, so I get a lot of people complaining to me about the character of my doctor, which I don't think is a very interesting or scientific issue, but I'm glad there are other people who care about that, but I, mm. I personally choose uh, not to write about that sort of thing. But it's really interesting how I think everybody has their own idiosyncratic ideal of what a doctor should be like mm. to talk to but everybody thinks that their idiosyncratic ideal is in fact the universal right. and if their doctor fails to meet their personal ideal of how a doctor should be on the axis between being like an evidence-driven sort of robot who's completely honest with you all the time or being sort of caring and fluffy mm. you know I mean ideally you should be a little bit of both but I'd like my doctor literally to be a robot I don't mean that fatuously. <laughs> well, no. So I think this is really interesting for the future, actually, because I um, I'm really interested in 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 shared decision making, not in the kind of fluffy Tory manifesto sense, but in the in the kind of the the the, the sense that the term is used in in uh, sort of bioinformatics in the corner of bioinformatics that's about data driven medicine, because what's interesting about that is. Um, so people have started deriving lots of really interesting heuristics and programs for predicting your own personal risk, um, which then you sit down with your doctor and they'll go, OK, you've had breast cancer. This is the staging of the breast cancer that you had. This is the operation that we've done now. And we've cleared the original lump and we've also cleared some of these lymph nodes. And then this is what we found in the lymph nodes. Now, starting now, this is your survival curve if we don't do any further treatment. This is your survival curve over the next 10 years if you have tamoxifen. This is your survival curve over the next 10 years if you have tamoxifen plus two other chemotherapeutic agents. These are the side effects. Now let's discuss you know, what kind of risks you're mm. interested in taking, what your priorities are in terms of avoiding side effects, in terms of longevity and so on. And what's interesting about all of that, I think, is it doesn't mean that doctors will become like automaton robots. Yeah. Actually, if anything, it means all of the numerical aspects of making decisions about treatment are kind of farmed out onto the machine. And actually what the doctor's main job is, is, is one of popular science communication. You're sat down with a patient explaining to them the evidence as it stands at the moment on yeah. the different treatment options available and what it would mean for that individual. Of course, you and how certain you of course the problem with that is inevitably you then have the accusation that the doctor will skew his interpretation or her interpretation of the evidence before them to direct the patients to his or her favourite course of therapy. So well, whether that's a problem or not is, of course, debatable. But Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I mean, I, I, different territories have different issues around conflict of interest for individual doctors. Um, 
So, for example, in America, for a long time, oncologists were paid um, if they, you know, you, you get paid per task, basically. Mm. And that's quite an interesting problem for all um, medical systems. In the UK, your doctor has an interest in batting you away. And and people kind of sense that, I think. Oh, yes, of but also, you, you can see it in the literature, a lot of the UK literature is what's really driven stuff around, for example, if you see somebody with a sore throat who's demanding antibiotics, obviously the right thing to do is say, well, antibiotics won't help your sore throat. Um, but a lot of G- GPs in the UK traditionally have gone, oh, well, for God's sake, for a quiet life, I'll give somebody antibiotics just to get rid of them. I know several people who are given antibiotics for a cold. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Quite recently. Because they're assertive. And also, you know, if they didn't get antibiotics for a cold, they would be bitching endlessly at the school gates about mm. how awful Dr Parkinson was at yes. the surgery or whatever. Mm. Um, but I, 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 I get the sense that you see more of, of, of the kind of research from the UK that, that, does, that addresses questions like this, like how can you minimise patients coming back to you? Yeah. And so in the UK, there are a couple of classic papers on if I, um, if I don't give antibiotics and I give people basic self-management advice for how to deal with a cold and a sore throat, what happens over the next three years, five years, mm. because actually it turns out if you give people antibiotics, you reinforce their dependence and so they come back to you next year asking for more antibiotics. So mm. paradoxically, you don't reduce your workload yeah. by caving in, you actually increase your workload. Meanwhile, in Germany, just this morning, there's a, a paper that came out from the German equivalent of the BMA, a discussion paper, saying, um, we've done a survey of the literature on placebos, and placebos work, and they do, mm-hmm. and we've done a survey of um, Uh, doctors in Germany and half of them say I have prescribed a placebo at some stage and we think that it's okay to prescribe placebos and people should do it's not considered ethical here is it in the UK no it's not probably not really considered ethical anyway because it involves you you know you have to lie to your patient you have to mislead your patient and we've decided implicitly I would agree without enough discussion 30 years ago that we were turning our back on salant slot sprat and the (laughs) old-fashioned doctors in the house model Mm. Um, of, of patronising our patients and, and lying to them, giving false reassurance, and we decided that instead we would um, work collaboratively with the patient towards an optimum health outcome. Is what it says in the <laughs> Ironic, Ironically, and maybe that. self-reassurance itself can be a good placebo. Well, gonna, so you so, may you okay, may be having a Hippocratic problem by not doing self-reassurance. Absolutely, and I think that's paradoxes really here. I think that's really important, and 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 uh, a cost <clears throat> that the. I mean, I've not read the German BMA report because my German's not good enough. But looking at the reports, there's a cost with prescribing placebos which they haven't addressed, which is you reinforce dependence on your doctor. You reinforce the patient's belief that the problem I have presented to my doctor with today, for which he believes there is no medical treatment, he is falsely reinforcing the patient's belief that actually there is a medical treatment for that condition. And so... Also what he's doing is increasing repeat attendance. Mm. And in Germany, as far as I understand their, their, um, their payment model, you get paid per clinical act as a doctor. So actually if you reinforce patients' dependence on you, if you reinforce patients' belief that um, their self-limiting medical problem is actually a, a medical problem that requires a doctor yes. and, a, and a pill then you increase repeat attendance. And so that, that was relevant to what you were saying about, yeah. about doctors and uh, perhaps um, having a, a, a competing interest when they talk patients through the advice on... I mean, I, I, wasn't even thinking, I wasn't even thinking quite so cynically. I was just thinking, there's a doctor who says, OK, the evidence shows this, the evidence shows that, but actually, you know, 
I've, I've got my own pet theory. I'm interested in suggesting that you try this treatment because, frankly, I think it's um, something that I've had good personal experience with. Okay, I know what the data shows, but you know, we're, we're, none, none of us is immune from that sort of um, anecdotal thinking. I suppose one would have to be very strongly regulated not to skew someone's decision very gently saying, okay, the data shows this, the data shows this, perhaps we'll minimise the extent of the side effects of that and perhaps maximise the extent of the curative effect of that and generally nudge people to make the right decision. Not because you're being paid by Big Pharma, but because you actually believe whatever the data says, this is what I think is actually the right way. The, the little bit of remaining Lancelot Sprat in you is doing that. Do you think that that's unrealistic? Okay, so two things. Firstly... That always has and always will happen anyway. Mm. And I, I don't think shared decision-making um, tools, you know, the very the proper numerical ones, will will eradicate that. But I don't think that they will um, make it any worse. Mm. I think probably they'll they'll make it better. But also, secondly, um, it, nobody has ever said that evidence-based medicine is about ignoring hunches, clinical acumen patient experience or doctor experience. In fact, you know, the the um, the Ur text in evidence-based medicine, the 1993 um, editorial by uh, by you know Sackett and all of the greats, specifically says evidence-based medicine is about using the best currently available quantitative data to inform decision making alongside patient preference, doctor's clinical acumen and currently available services. Because obviously, you know, in a lot of cases it might sound irrelevant, but once you're actually practicing, it becomes really relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, when nice say you shouldn't give SSRI antidepressants for mild or moderate depression, which I absolutely agree with. I've written a huge length about how the, the evidence on their efficacy is first grossly distorted by industry, and second, even at best, not particularly compelling. No. But they also said you should refer people for um, talking treatments and talking treatments yes. very very commonly was, aren't available. I was going to say about Nick's robot doctor the one thing that I would think would be massively missing in a GP in that sense would be the oh you poor thing element of going to the doctor yeah. which seems isn't that about well, half of it? Well, really? well you last went but to the GP in the 1950s then do you? The la- no, uh, when I go to the GP I do never get the sense of oh you poor thing I get I, the sense of as you say What's the quickest way I can get you out of my surgery I've for good? Very and different experience of GPs. Then. Indeed, I mean, I will rant. I know you. I think you respect GPs a lot, people. but um, I, I rant about GPs because I see them as mm-hmm. very expensive buffers, um, and that's why I literally the, the day that we get a very good quality robot will be the day that men. I think, but well, I think, well, men in particular will do far better because men don't like to go to their GPs. I think the day you can go to a robot that will stick its prong up your no, backside to it, check your prostate it, but, will be the day that prostate cancer ends. But that's part of the culture of. of of how men experience medicine and what contact you have with them because women are in the habit of going to see their doctor in a way that men aren't because women have to go to, to you know, well, they don't have to be on the oral contraceptive pill. Um, it's rather <laughs> Dr. Ben Goldick says. <laughs> From now on, all women... There's, an, there's, an, there's another headline for you to battle with. <laughs> uh, goodbye, Johnny. Yes. Um, uh, you know, women are in the habit of going to see doctors because there are many, many, many more... Um, things that, that, that women between the ages of you know, 18 and 40 yeah. um, will have contact with, with medical services yeah. around, you know, mainly fertility stuff, yeah. um, but also you know, cervical smiths. Yeah. There are mm. no routine screening things that, no. that men have to go to. I, I didn't go to a doctor from 
the age of 17 to 33 I think mm -hmm. and you know it didn't it never occurred to me that mm -hmm. and, and I and I think that's probably why I, I there were probably lots of little bits and bobs which I maybe could have gone to the CAGP about and then but yeah. do you not think you have a slight bias in that you can self-diagnose to an extent oh Christ no no I mean, that's no. very dangerous. I know well, it's dangerous. When you're at medical school, you basically diagnose yourself. You've got everything, everything, you, everything you read. I mean, I've had several forms of uh, brain cancer, <laughs> leukemia. You know, mainly I'm just a little bit tired today. I think if I was honest, I'd go, "Oh, my medically unexplained symptoms are a bit bad today. <laughs> I'm feeling quite tired and not very interested." Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, overall, doctors die late. Do sorry, doctors die early and there's some evidence that they present late, probably because they are weird about um, uh, either self-diagnosing and minimising symptoms or maybe, um, you know, you, you spot a lot of, uh, um, you know, dark black blood in your stools and you think, OK, I know that's pretty bad, mm -hmm. so I'm not going to go to a doctor at all about yeah. that, you know. Uh, but yeah, so doctors actually tend to die early and present late. Mind you, they drink a lot and commit suicide quite commonly. <laughs> yeah, that's very. That nice. can be quite detrimental, I find. Well, if it works, yes. It's true. Um, so but we're talking about doctors and the health service in more general terms, but in the more specific terms, I mean, you're a great fan of the Conservative proposals to, pri <laughs> to, to, to privatise the health service. Oh, sorry, we're not... To big societise the health service. Now, everybody's been focusing particularly on the way that the GPs are going to be given control of the NHS budget. And, of course, we all know the massive problem that that's going to bring forth. But I'm more interested in the whole marketization of it in a sense it's almost that that's the big story that they're throwing ahead of people so that that's what gets reported on and debated about because you know it sounds a bit cuddly oh my, my, I like my GP so I like the fact my GP's in control now kind of thing mm. but in a sense that's the least of our problems um, surely the bigger problem is the whole fact that we're now we're not even going to have a pretend market in, anymore we're going to have a real market and effectively doesn't that mean that it's not hyperbole to say that, in a real sense, the NHS is, over the next five to ten years, being privatised. Well, we don't know. I mean, it's certainly a bigger risk now than it was before. Labour had sort of opened the doors to all kinds of dreadful things themselves, actually. I mean, I'm not a big fan of, of any political party in this country, which is the sad position that yes. I think mm -hmm. most people find yeah. themselves in these days. And then we voted <laughs> yes. for the one that looked all right, and then they turned out to be even shitter. Yes. But, um, your, your MP signed a pledge, didn't you? Oh, he? my MP has been a nice. popular topic on this podcast. Well, no, but do you know what? I actually, I think it's wrong to have a pop at the Lib Dems for, for changing their policies once they're in government because that's what coalitions are about you know I mean I kind of feel like yeah but you shouldn't tell people I'm in favour when you, when you sign a document well, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't maybe going a little far yeah but you shouldn't sign pledges yes. that's the mistake they made but and he that, did and therefore he's and a actually, but that's a one off that will never happen again people because people will know in, in mm. the future that you cannot sign a pledge as somebody who is likely to enter into a coalition and actually it was really stupid of the Lib Dems to ever like what were they th were they really thinking okay when we are elected with a majority government yeah. these are the policies well that, yeah, but that's, the most, but that's the most damning thing anybody could have predicted that a yeah. coalition or some sort yeah. of de wheeler dealing was likely yeah. and the fact that they didn't predict it well, no, but if is the, the most damning thing of their efficacy if the Lib Dems were to be involved in government at all then it would be the result of a coalition yes. yeah. so I think the, the, the Lib Dems in particular shouldn't have, yeah, shouldn't have signed exactly. Labour and Tory I think you know reasonable for them to sign pledges yes um, but 
but Lib Dems is grandiose at best and mm. sort of fuckwittedly short sighted at worst. Mm. You're going to have to bleep that out. No, we were not. Oh, yeah, what's no, we can swear, swear as much policy. as you like. I'm being fatuous. Uh, you, you were saying <laughs> we, uh, we don't know, as you say, Labour did open doors, which even Thatcher didn't necessarily dare mm. to open. And now we're having lots of elephants push through the doors. Yeah, I mean, the Overton window of what's acceptable um, is, is, uh, has certainly shifted hugely to the right mm. on, on, on health policy. Um, I mean, so competition in healthcare is a really, really interesting one because there are various aspects of healthcare that aren't actually very amenable to competition or create new problems. Mm. So firstly, there is the question of what do you measure as your quality outcome? I mean, even in a even in a very explicit market like laptops, for example, people go out of their way to try and make it a little bit difficult for you to compare one product against oh, yeah, another. Yeah. Like you notice, it's really infuriating when you're buying a new laptop. You notice that people have slightly non-overlapping interdigitating specs mm. to prevent you making a of comparison. Course, yes. Because people know that as soon as you can make a comparison, then you can price, and then you can, you know, the competition becomes much yeah. and you want to avoid that. So, well, so avoid trying to avoid commoditization at all costs, really. Trying to avoid a rational market. Mm. Yeah. Now, m- medicine and healthcare present. A new interesting problem which is how do you measure outcomes at all because um, a lot of them are quite intangible and so if you have competition on quality but price stays the same then at least people are making a bit more of an effort to express the quality of a service and and measure the quality of, of a service if you have competition based on price then that becomes much more difficult because then if everybody is competing on price, you're probably setting, um, you're probably sort of deriving algorithms, flowcharts, sort of crude, uh, sort of tick box ways of measuring quality. Mm. And once you start doing that, people start gaming your quality outcomes. And you know, I, the bottom line is, quality is difficult to measure for for an outpatient clinic, yeah. well, for, I mean, for a hospital. Well, I mean, if if one takes precedence, I mean. Before my wife sold her breast milk to an ice cream parlour, she was a teacher for a while, mm-hmm. and she said that's exactly the way PFI works in education. Effectively, you would have so-called base minimum standards, and then the organisation, so say the size of a classroom or the size of a desk or whatever, and then of course Wimpy or Barrett or whoever got the contract to do it would gain those standards. A, they would stick to the bare minimum yeah. and then they'd stick to the most legalistic, barest interpretation of the bare minimum yeah. and then they, and then frankly they wouldn't be properly policed anyway so they'd cut a bit off that minimum and generally that seems to be, if you look in the railways as well when they were privatised and cost was basically the, the way it was done that seems to be what happens. Also people game things in interesting ways so there's... Um, there are there are journeys that I've done in England to very sort of remote points on the sort of edge of the of the United Kingdom, mm. where the last leg of the journey I've only ever done in taxi out of the five times that I've done it, mm. because the cost of making the final train wait and breach its timetable um, commitment by waiting for the train that was connecting in. Yes. From the previous, from the mainland service, the cost of doing that was so great that it was actually cheaper for them to make the train leave on time, maroon all of the people who are arriving on the previous train, but then stick them all in taxis. So the overall cost is higher, yeah. but 
the um, but people sort of stick to their system, and so you know you get you get paradoxical outcomes from people gaming mm. gaming those algorithms basically. Um, but there's also something interesting around around uh, the people who participate in in healthcare, which is that um, they're slightly unusual markets in that they are often driven by a degree of goodwill or a degree of people sort of working or giving out of um, a kind of notional sense of the common good rather than raw self-interest. And as soon as you start to introduce raw self-interest, then that starts to cloud out people's um, perception and and they start to only follow that. So it's another form of gaming algorithms. So there are two examples of that. One one is provocatively um, not very emotive. And one, I think it is. Okay. Um, so the one that you might not buy is consultants. And I, consultants are, are paid actually quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not as much as partner GPs. I mean, there's a lot of bollocks that gets talked about about junior doctor pay. I don't think I've ever had more than thirty-eight grand a year for my sort of working week, and I'm ten years out of medical school. Mm-hmm. But consultants, I, I think, start on. 68 or 70 something something like that and it goes up to maybe 100 and something but with if you've got sort of lots of merit awards and you're sort of you know nationally or internationally significant GPs actually sort of basic jobbing GP is probably 60 grand but then partners if you're an entrepreneur businessman and you really are an entrepreneur businessman if you're being paid 150 but they can get 150 but that's that's an exchange for being a small businessman as well as being a, a, a doctor, but anyway, you know, mm. I've no desire to defend or, or, or whatever any of those figures. But something very interesting happened around the GP contract about uh, ten years ago when they started bringing it in, which was managers started to say to sorry the consultant contract managers started to say, okay, you have to work this many sessions per week for us. I want you to tell us exactly what you do for us on every day of the week. And suddenly, all of these people who for their whole life had worked for the NHS and had done things like, you know, I mean, I have, you know, when I do Saturday morning ward round after a night on call, for example, I'd have the consultant in, often carrying his daughter on his arm around the wards for three hours, Mm -hmm. introducing her to the patients, you know, and that's not something that is was ever written in his contract or that he was explicitly paid for but obviously if you're the consultant on call on Friday night you've got to go in for the post-take ward round on Saturday morning Mm. and the consultant shows up and and what happened was as soon as people were being micromanaged as soon as they were writing down what do I do every week firstly they started to notice it and secondly they started to play by the rules so it became well actually you're right yeah you yeah a work to rule sort of well, not 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 a huffy work to no. me, but just a. God, you're right. You've made me notice the rules, and mm. you've made me notice how my pre-existing behaviour fits into those rules. And so, actually, there's a risk that when you start introducing works to rule for individuals, in the same way that what we were talking about for for people producing skills under PFI, mm. as soon as you start um, as soon as you start introducing rules, there is, I think, a risk that people will start to prioritise those rules over the, the kind of spirit of, of what was intended, but also of, of what the kind of culture was. Before. Well, there's a direct comparison, again, in education with the national curriculum. Yes, you know, there's, a, there's yeah. a notion that, OK, this is a positivist thing to do. We want to make sure everybody's got the same quality of learning wherever they are in the country yeah. and there are certain basic things we need to teach. 
But I think we all know where that story's ended. And as you say, the whole spirit of education has been lost in this tick box culture, to use a cliché. And I don't think that's because people are bad. And also, I don't think that it means that, um, that producing sort of guidelines or attempting to measure outcomes is a bad thing, but I think it's just, it's one of many things that you want to bear in mind. The other example I was going to raise is um, is this the is, emotive one or the blood trend this is this is the more emotive one this okay. is the one that this is the one where you're naturally the one where you won't immediately go bloody doctors you live near Collindale so I know all about blood transfusions although they're privatizing it aren't they or something okay so that's really interesting right what happens when you privatize a blood service because people give blood out of a kind of common collective sense of the good of the mm. nation. Yeah. Christopher Hitchens talks about this himself a lot, actually, as an example of something that somebody does without having to have a deity or some other thing yeah. to tell them how to do it. Yeah, just for the, for the greater good. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and two interesting things can pervert or pollute that, that sense. One is if you start paying people. As they do in the States. Yeah. And as they do in New Zealand, and and um, there's interesting research on what happens when services are in transition. Basically, once you start paying, what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, and the bottom line is, you know, firstly, I, transfusions can go down, but also you start getting different people. And all of the the, the earliest discussions on this um, that happened kind of around 68, 71 um, were uh, that's Cooper Cullier, if you're interested in the reference. But all of those were were around. Um, uh, I mean, they were quite unselfconsciously um, snobbish. They basically said, well, you know, if you're paying people, then obviously you're only going to get peasants, and peasants are more likely to have hepatitis because they live <laughs> in dirty, <laughs> dirty lives. And so you check, but you, but, but, but you that's the perception the in, the United, in the United States. The perception of the blood donor is some hobo on, on his last luck getting blood so he can buy alcohol, and that's the, really that's the cliche. Whereas the cliche in the UK so. is probably, you know, uh, a wholesome Something. OT, like an occupational therapist. Or the or Women's Institute going yeah. and get a mass and a cup of tea and a biscuit. Exactly. Cup of tea and a biscuit and yeah. so uh, But it, I, I think the other thing that we'll see that will be quite interesting is even if you know we're not introducing payments, which there's no discussion of in the UK at the moment, but once you see that there is a profit-making yes. organisation... Asda Blood Banking. Are you going to be happy to give your blood to Asda Blood Banking Corporate? Yeah, am I going to give my blood to these people so that they can... Literally profit, profit, literally profit off it. And, and, and that's interesting because I think even if we all, with our sort of most adult brain on, go, well, it's still the same thing... And, and somebody's still, still going to need the transfusion. Service. And, you know, and it's still... They're, they're running it. And, and you, even if, you, with your adult brain, you're presented with the best facts and you go, OK, and they're running it more efficiently as well. So, actually, they're, you know, they're saving money and there's mm. less blood being wasted because the in and out is being run. But I think still there's something in the back of your head which you, which you can't ignore if it's widespread and if it affects, you know, service use. Um, something in the back of people's heads, I think, goes... Well, I don't know. You know, what, do I want to give blood to? Yeah. To do I want to give blood to Barclays? Do I want, if, if GSK yeah. are running it? Do I? You know. What? No, well, I, I'll agree with that, and I think that even if people don't express that, I think there is a there's something subtle going on in play there. When you say this blood bank is operated by, it's a bit like when you go to a station. Yeah. You say, is there something annoying about you know when you're travelling yeah. being called a customer when yeah. when you're giving blood? What are you? I suppose you're a what? What would your relationship be to this organisation? It would be a very ambiguous situation. Also, I suspect you you probably see a bit of an uptick in um, in people taking 
what I think a lot of people regard as the slightly antisocial step of legal action against um, the you know your your healthcare provider. I think it's easier to to allow yourself to scratch that itch mm. if it's a private organisation. You know. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't thought through my position on that, so I'm just now re re wondering if I really think it's antisocial to sue the NHS. I think it depends. I suppose it depends on what the practical outcome of the cock up. Yeah, I suppose is, it's it? it's. I suppose it's, it's slightly bizarre in that you are essentially suing yourself, which is a strange. Yeah, it well, would be antisocial to sue the NHS if your primary desire to do so would be, I suppose intentionality is important. Yeah. Your primary desire to do so would be to enrich yourself. Mm. That would be a problem. Pay, pay if you're less tax than you yeah. are next time. Yes. If, 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 on the other hand, you want to do them because some, there's been some to, grand enormity and it really needs to be dealt with, you can't also, just deal with it on the ombudsman. If you need 24-hour care, then probably that's being provided by the state. Well, well exactly. I mean, yes. Yes. Well, I suppose, no, but if you've lost a breadwinner, you know, mm. the family is suffering and... I wanted to go back to something you said before about um, antidepressants. I was interested. Um, I'm diagnosed uh, with anxiety disorder. Don't worry, I'm not. Um, and uh, had various different treatments. But they made up diseases. Yes, yes, I know. It's awful. And they've given me antidepressants. So I'm on 20 milligrams of Talipram. I know it's a placebo. And I know that the test proved that it doesn't actually help that much. Well, it doesn't matter. Even if you but, know it's a placebo, exactly, it still works. But it's, well, that's my point. It, that I find this, In fact, I was on 10. I went back and I doubled it to 20 and I felt even better. Even with a conscious... And obviously I know there's lots of study into placebo. It can be self-aware. But my question is, is it then is there an ethical issue with prescribing antibiotics when the uh, patient knows, antibiotics or sorry, not antibiotics, antidepressants when the patient is totally aware that they're, they're only essentially working as placebo if they're working? Um, okay, so firstly, I'm totally allergic to um, any kind of uh, sort of sofa doctor readers health queries type thing. So this no, no, I'm not coming to no, no, yeah, I'm not yeah, yeah, to ask you about yeah, yeah. my condition. No, no, at all. no, no, because. No. Um, uh, the evidence on SSRIs and anxiety is a slightly different question anyway but on the general issue of of placebos mm -hmm. I, I think I think it's wrong for doctors to lie to patients I, I even when the lie has a beneficial effect to their health yeah I mean I think people can choose that they can choose that in the marketplace they can go to a quack who will give them false reassurance yeah um and I just don't think that it's the role of, of medics. And I think even if it is the role of medics, then you certainly don't want to be giving out things which have genuine potential for physical side effects as well, right. which, which SSRIs do. So they should have really yeah. given you homeopathy then. They should, well, in fact, the, well, that's the argument for well, homeopathy. Is, often, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. the old, this is the old argument for homeopathy. At yeah, least it's, it's a, a harmless test, placebo, yeah. yeah. Except mm -hmm. it, it has nocebo effects. <laughs> it has side effects which are also... You know, the product of your beliefs and expectations. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I think it's very difficult. I think with something like SSRIs, where the effects are present but marginal, I'm not sure it's entirely unreasonable to try them. I mean, if somebody has experienced benefit from them, then it's possible that they are. Yeah in the sort of unusual subgroup of people who do genuinely experience some benefit could be from real. them. And yeah, exactly. You know, but... It's unlikely. Well, you know, so with depression, it's it's two or three points improvement on a Hamilton depression score. And that means you've dropped a couple of points on questions like, you know, I wake up early, 
every morning and can't back, get back to sleep to I wake up every morning and often can't get back to sleep. <laughs> yes. You know, that's, it's, yes. You know, you're improving by a couple of points on a scale that has, you know, I wake up 30 early every morning and can't get back to sleep. Well, that's probably because I've got a baby, babyitis. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the old placebo ethics question, and I think it's. Do you know what? I think it's reasonable for 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 people to prescribe placebos in some circumstances. But what I really would like to see is due diligence around the question. Do you know okay. what I mean? Like, yeah. mm. like it's quite common in medicine that that you find yourself writing a page of notes basically to justify why you're doing something that if you just wrote okay this is what I'm doing people could quite reasonably come back especially if it goes wrong and say what on earth were you thinking but if you write out your reasoning I think you, you know that's a that you present a reasonable case I think that's okay and similarly for a profession or for a subgroup within a profession I think if people can actually sit down and say well we've thought about this you know, we've weighed up the pros and cons of lying to patients, mm -hmm. of undermining the credibility of all doctors' utterances by breaking the sacred bond of truth. Yes. Mm -hmm. you know, background mm. music, please. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll edit some in. Nice. Um, the sacred bond of truth. Mm. But um, the, if, if, if you can show that, you know, we've kind of said, OK, well, we don't mind if we're undermining the credibility of all medical utterance <laughs> by lying to patients just to make ourselves feel better in this situation, then fine. But actually, in a lot of circumstances, I think if a doctor is giving a pill for a condition which a pill will not be helpful, mm -hmm. then it's possible that that reflects a lack of knowledge on the part of the doctor, but it's also possible that it reflects either poor communication skills or you know an inability to to work collaboratively with the patient to to discuss the options and express the evidence because people do doctors do get pressured into handing out oh sure pills yes. you know and and i it is a difficult thing it's a much more difficult thing i think to to finish a a consultation where a patient wants a pill where you don't think that pill is appropriate without giving them the pill you know it, it first mm. it certainly probably takes longer um uh, but also it's a much more challenging consultation and yeah. and and actually lastly so i'm quite a libertarian not um i'm not like a climate change skeptic twat libertarian <laughs> you're I a cuddly libertarian i'm cuddly libertarian yeah i don't have a basement full of baked beans and shotguns <laughs> but we don't have a basement i don't have yeah, a basement exactly but um keep but, those in the attic I don't, you know, I, but I, I do think, I, I don't want to ban anything. Like, I don't want to ban homeopathy. They, they get very hysterical about this. You know? <laughs> people want to take away your right to health freedom. Mm. I'm like, fine, you know, I'm very pleased to see people wasting their money on quackery. Mm. It's fine, you know, I yeah. take sadistic pleasure. <laughs> I think it's more interesting than I think it's bad. Yes. But actually, if we extend that to, to, to medical drugs, and also similarly, you know, I think probably that heroin should be available on prescription to heroin addicts and mm -hmm. and I think that the consequences of prohibition of many recreational drugs has been worse than the physical effects of those drugs on people I think there's almost very little doubt about that now. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the cost but, of the war on drugs even in South America and places like yeah. that the number of people who are killed and maimed in, in its name is just extraordinary it's, it's an ignored story but, but, but then so, if we say so in government you'd be quietly asked to leave oh, of course yeah. you'll be asked to but, but, stop it with your evidence and go away but then let's let's bring all of that back to the question about um, patients demanding SSRIs from GPs or from doctors mm. or from psychiatrists or from whoever 
Now, actually, I find it, I find it slightly unacceptable that I should be the gatekeeper and somebody's only way of getting SSRIs. If somebody comes to me and says, I've read about SSRIs, I know what the evidence is, I think they'd help me prescribe me some SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, no, I don't think mm. the evidence shows that you would benefit from them. Then, you know, in some respects, who am I to deprive a thinking, feeling, competent adult mm -hmm. who has come to an informed conclusion that they would like to take these drugs, which are, you know, I didn't invent citalopram or sertraline or fluoxetine. Mm. These are the product of, of you know, the collective humanities, um, you know, hundreds of years worth of, mm. of innovation standing on the shoulders of previous but generations. But that is literally of, paternalism. Of that is literally paternalism. Is you're like, well, your, your dad saying refusing no. it. Yeah, paradoxically, my refusing to give it to you, I think is... So, I mean, I think there probably should be some mechanism in society whereby I can say, well, as a doctor, I'm not going to be the one who signs the prescription saying, I think this is a good treatment for you. But if you really, really, really want these treatments, if you really want this pill, and it's not going to cause harm to the wider population in the mm. way that antibiotics do, although cry, I'm start with vets if you're worried about yes. that. Um, but, you know, if you really want SSRI antidepressants, I'm not going to sign my name to it and say, I'm going to give them to you. But actually, I don't think that that should be your only route. I think, mm. I think if, you want, if you really, really, really want them, then I think there should be another way that well you clearly help. people do really really want to get hold of all sorts of things hence canadian yeah. pharmacy one two three x dot com or whatever these yeah, there's yeah. this huge trade and it's not in the sort of naughty illicit drugs that one is, would normally is that right? discuss I've never looked at them. often well i mean it's, from it's normal well a lot of it it's, it's normal and, and well, i imagine the normal ones are probably um, people exploiting different prices yeah well exactly well exactly it's a lot of americans saying yeah, buying it in canada. saying let's buy it in canada because it's, it's frankly cheaper mm -hmm. and that that sort of stuff but apparently there is an illicit market and people saying, well, actually, my doctor won't prescribe me this yeah, or yeah. says I can't have any. I'd imagine steroids, for example, probably. I mean, there are quite a few drugs which people misuse, mm. which have sort of which offer short term relief with long term consequences where where doctors will try to, you know, protect you against your own, you know, protect you from yourself, I suppose. Um, mm. And of course, the philosophical debate is. Um, to what right does anybody have to protect you from yourself well, and to I, what degree? You see, I think for a doctor it's different because for a doctor, you're a, a, a patient who's demanding steroids, say, for short-term relief mm. but long-term harm, as a doctor you're being, you're being invited by the patient to, to sign your name to a thing saying, I think this is the right treatment for you. And, and you don't think it's the right exactly. treatment for them. So I think there should be perhaps a way for patients to get hold of treatments which their doctors don't think are in their interest. Now, for the most part, this is like, this is the, the margins of medical practice, but I think it's, I think it's something that's necessary to, to talk or think about if you are going to be both um, a libertarian about access to, um, you know, quack medicines and recreational drugs. And by libertarian, I mean, you know, within some social yes. structure that's more that's sort of you know healthier than criminal distribution mm. um if you're going to be libertarian about those two things then i think you also have to think about the person who is refused ssris by a series of doctors yeah in reality of course people will just go to a series of doctors and yeah find them. the one that gives them to them or, yes. and, and also interestingly people people shop around not just for treatments but but people also shop around for diagnoses oh yes <laughs> that's very 
Um, there are people who will insist on a diagnosis of bipolar affective disorder and they will go to Harley Street and they will get one because mm -hmm. the GP or their local NHS psychiatrist won't, won't agree to one and they want a diagnosis of bipolar affective disorder yeah. and you know just you know I think you're feeling a bit down in the dumps or I think you have yeah. quite a changeable mood generally as a person it's the kind of person that you are you know if somebody finds that unacceptable and wants a, a biomedical label a kind of reductionist a mechanical explanation mm. of, of of their mood and and you know a sort of a robotic story of personhood yes. then you can buy that and and mm. I think people buy that as as often as they buy I think I think the, the the counter to this, I wonder, and the reason I personalise it is is purely because it's hard to talk about a hypothetical when it's in mm. real life, I guess, um, is that because I'm now taking these pills every day, when I miss a pill or I forget, I then feel worse, which I'm, I'm frustrated by the lunacy of it because I'm completely conscious of, of how daft it all is. But there's, is, there, is there that a detrimental effect of... Now I'm in a situation where I'm sort of beholden to this packet of pills. Yeah, but, that's your but, but as long as that's your choice to be so. So if your doctor <coughs> said to you, look... But the doctor evidence I didn't go asking for it. The doctor recommended it to me. It was recommended to me by the doctor. That's the issue. Well, dependency so, on any on any me medication. Where, where I suppose I suppose you have so dependency on any person or profession. I think is un is unhealthy. I mean, I I think you know the more you can do to to teach people self reliance, the better. And that's I mean the 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 the, the situation as you frame it is actually very similar to the the situation we were discussing earlier with the German doctors where they have an interest in mm. repeat attendance. Mm. And so they foster dependence, and fostering dependence on a pill, I think, does have genuine real-world negative consequences yeah. for, for people. And, I, and you know, I, I, I think that's something that needs to be factored into your kind of profit and loss of whether it's a good mm. idea to, to prescribe things which are entirely placebos, you know, especially if... Um, the patient experiences a downside, and also you, know, you want to be cautious if the doctor experiences an upside. American oncologists, um, uh, certainly until recently, and I think it's probably still the case, um, got paid for doing the IV chemotherapy for their own patients. So if it was a 50-50 call on whether that patient needed oral or IV chemotherapy, wow. they had a massive yeah. personal interest. If they weren't, if they weren't really busy, um, if they had spare earning slots in their timetable they had a massive personal yeah. interest well, in. so there's similar things with um, caesarean rates in the United States and they looked at the time when the consultant was about to clock off and go and play golf or something and suddenly mm -hmm. the caesarean rates would peak just before this <laughs> at yeah. each time you think well I mean uh, there may be other explanations but it's interesting how you can sometimes plot and of course I'm sure all each of those would never have said would never have said anything like I need to go to my golf hurry up but also you've got to bear in mind that um the time when you go to golf is probably also the the end of the normal working day in the hospital. And actually, I think there's an argument for saying services out of hours, you know, might not be quite as brilliant as services in hours. You know, if you if you if you have a giant cock up and you need the best anaesthetist on the planet to get a tube back into this woman, then um during the daytime there are more anaesthetists around you might get the two props mm -hmm. if you're very lucky mm. whereas at night time you've got the guy who's on call yeah. and you know he might be great but he'll certainly be a, yeah, probably an SPR and, mm. you know, I think there is an argument for, probably, yeah. it's not entirely mischief no. to try and get procedures which you know could be done at any time to get them out of the day of get, get them done during working hours I think uh, sorry jump in um 
I think what you're saying about uh, kind of almost the sadistic pleasure in seeing people falling for these tricks, and I share that with you when that when that person is informed. almost a, yeah informed, and that's I just I just had a, my first article published in a magazine called The Cat Magazine. It's been on it for eighty years. I'm delighted to awesome. discover. Um, so I got a column, and then I turned the an page. esteemed journal. That's right. I turned the page, and it's a two-page article about a homeopathic vet who's just started doing acupuncture. I love the idea of homeopathic acupuncture as well. Like, you almost touch them with a needle, I guess, but. Um, and then I think this is preying on people who like cats and I would never buy the cat magazine but I'm very delighted to be writing for it they're paying me money and that's great but I imagine the person who's reading oh, the I bet the cat pays more than the Guardian that sounds awful. yes it does I, it, I, does. I get it does it pays really? a lot better than, than any of the other magazines what I've do they pay for, by the yes. word it's not by word it was I think it was oh heck it was around 150 for 750 words which is be- it's not bad it's not, not for writing rates. about a little yeah. cat not newspaper rates but a lot better than, than, than a lot of other magazines no no there are newspapers <laughs> I think that well anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's. Um, but I'm really I'm thinking of the, the little old lady who's, who's got a cat and I, I, I kind of can't feel a sadistic pleasure in her falling for it so my take on this is I have different expectations of different individuals and, en- and entities mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised that there is an individual out there who wants to sell homeopathy sugar pills to customers by setting themselves up as a homeopath. And I'm mm. not surprised that that individual will lie to people in order to flog their pills or mislead people mm-hmm. through not just incompetence, but also having misled themselves. Or, or let's, yeah. let's give it very occasionally delude themselves that their pills are actually quite good. Yes. That must happen sometimes, surely. Of course, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't think the, the distinction between believe, innocent believer and malicious deceiver really maps on to... The, the quack mindset. No. I think you know, there's something that's happened where somebody's gone out of their way to self-deceive for so mm. long mm. that like they've a, lost the all me- sense like of the right and Forgotten that they're they're yeah. reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, Regella, for example. Yeah. yeah, but but in any case, I have I have actually I have spectacularly low expectations of that person. <laughs> obviously, yeah. for very obvious reasons. Yeah. Similarly, actually, the person who falls for that individual, I think you know. As with now said, these aren't accidents. They're throwing themselves willingly into the roads. You know, mm-hmm. these are people who, who have chosen to go and see somebody who's really clearly labelled themselves as a nutter. <laughs> and yeah, you know, especially but, today when you have Google and Wikipedia available to you, it's quite easy to at least exactly. do some yeah. basic research. But I think where it gets more problematic is, as you say, if it's somebody where people are entitled to have higher expectations of the truth content of their utterances. Right. Now, the cat magazine is fairly low down on that, but it's still, on, it's still higher up the hierarchy than... It's been going for 80 years. ...the high street quack. It's been going for 80 years. Yeah, it's longer than the high street quack's been going. Exactly. And so, you know, if, if, you, if you push that up, to take the, the, the example of homeopathic vets, for example, the UK Veterinary Association, whatever they call the RCVS, mm-hmm. um, they have failed to um, kind of clamp down on vets making uh, very obviously sort of ridiculous um, claims about efficacy of quack treatments. But also, even more viciously than that, they have um, shut down and, and really silenced in, in quite a sinister way um, vets who practice evidence-based veterinary medicine and have also set up websites campaigning against quackery in veterinary treatment right they've shut them down and said this is unacceptable for you to criticize other vets now firstly that's chilling because i you know science is built on mutual self-criticism of course and 
medicine I really 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 want I mean what is peer review if, if not mutual Absolutely. and also you know specifically in medicine because the stakes are high we want people to critically review our treatments and our practices and our evidence at all times and actually to stifle that in silence that I think is chilling but also it's 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 a massive betrayal of the we have higher expectations of the RCVS than we do of the quack on the high street mm. and so I think when newspapers print things which are demonstrably factually untrue as fact, then that's really bad. Yeah. And, you know, a, a bloke at a party being wrong <laughs> is, is, to me is not important. But a news story in a newspaper being wrong, I think, is important. So I think a regulator failing in their duties in the way that the MHRA very clearly has by, by, by producing these ridiculous labels for homeopathy shipping mm. pills is very problematic you know and by the same token I'm I'm quite unimpressed by a drug company trying to withhold side effect data from their label right I'm not very surprised by an individual drug rep not mentioning yeah. a side effect on a label actually any doctor who sees a drug mm-hmm. rep is an idiot actually yeah. <laughs> prescribing nurse who sees a drug rep because we have to remember now that drug reps are massively targeting mm-hmm. prescribing nurses mm-hmm. um, although I think prescribing nurses are a great thing but they you know they need to recognise that they're yeah. pro mm-hmm. now to the same pressure but you get my pen and the pad yeah exactly <laughs> but the MHRA failing to implement in a timely fashion a label change because the drug company doesn't like it is a real problem you know, so where does where does in your clearly labelled nutter in the high street where does Boots the chemist come into this? Because I go from the Boots and I see terrifying things. Well, so see to me these things are flexible. I sort of feel caveat emptor emptor about that with me. I think Boots, well, as long as it's not behind the pharmacy part of Boots, it's kind no, of no. Aspect. But pharmacists now in in respected high street pharmacies are are giving out um, quack treatments in ways that are very very clearly misleading they're giving very obviously misleading results uh, uh, and back to being apothecaries I suppose <laughs> well and that you see that I think is is something to be encouraged I mean so it would be nice if pharmacists were as the Royal Pharmaceutical Society claim your scientist on the high street mm. that's what they say mm-hmm. you know they, they like to pretend they are this sort of you know the sort of place where you can go for evidence based advice on treatments for for medical problems but if actually in reality on an individual level they've decided to turn their back on that and the RPS isn't interested in policing it and Boots isn't interested in policing it then actually the most important thing that we can do I think is to ensure that they are rebranded in the popular consciousness I think it's really really important I think for genuinely for public health reasons I think it is important that people are told now that Boots the Chemists sell quack remedies mm-hmm. pretending that they have real medical effects. Yeah. And I think people should know that. Yeah. And I think people should know that they do that with obvious quack remedies and I think people should know that that probably means that you should have a good degree less faith yes. in the things that they... Don't trust Boots the way you thought you could trust them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I think that's a decision that Boots have have made and I think they were hoping to sort of you know crawl about in the kind of grey space well yes it was clear they were you know and and you know kind of bad luck you know you've you mm. kind of you, you shoot your reputation mm. and I think the only way that they can claw that back is by coming out and making a very clear statement which they never will well which they're unlikely to do and you know again I don't 
I don't view quackery as the most important thing. I just think it's the most extreme and therefore an interesting talking point yeah. for how all of these things can be clouded in different ways. Because there's no doubt that Boots also, you know, will, like any sort of person who profits personally from selling a product, will be distorting the mm. evidence on many other things. Cough syrup, for example, you know, the evidence is extremely weak. But yeah. some say that out all the time. Yeah. But um, I think it's interesting how reputations can be shifted and that they should be shifted well the, the, the LSE's reputation for example in the last week or so is shifting when it became it's, it's, but I think that sort of thing is important because you, they, they probably never thought that would happen they thought we're getting a lot of money from Gaddafi we're making these deals it's fine nobody will ever give a damn and so this kind of brand cynicism comes in now it is indeed coming back to bite them on the backside in a very big way, and the LSE is indeed having its international reputation massively tarnished. And I wonder whether, you with know, there are similar similar sorts of calculations could happen with, with right. people I mean, like Boots. But, I, but it's also the kind of calculation that doctors have to make about whether you give out ineffective treatments to buy you time mm. for, um, for patients that are demanding some kind of yeah. treatment. It's about trading off short-term benefits against long-term goals yeah. and and you know I suppose to an extent if if uh, I mean there is a bit of a pattern of short-termism in in corporate consciousness these days isn't there I mean that's yes. a story that you see in banks at least but I suppose they they knew that they were underwritten by us <laughs> yeah yes. um, no but it, but it is everywhere and basically shareholders these days don't usually look for the 10, 20, 30 year return, but they look for the next quarter. Okay, and so they start panicking within a quarter. So what's your sense of this since you're a businessman? Well, in an extent, although I'm not a pub, I'm not in a PLC. So our own shareholders are, you know, friends and people and whatever. So you're So in a sense we can take the long term view. I think when you start when you become a PLC and you then latched on to the money machine at that point, people these days are looking and saying, we're going to look at the next quarter, the next two quarters. If you're not showing growth, we're going to start panicking. Um, it's, it's, and it's not because of anyone's individual fault. It's a, a general kind of, I suppose it's to do with the speed of communication nowadays. In the old mm -hmm. days where, you know, you'd have to send somebody across the Atlantic to find out what your shares yeah, were doing yeah, on the steamer. Doing. Exactly. Yeah. And then you come back on the steamer the next day. Now you're constantly repressing refresh to see what, yeah. what the last... Yeah, exactly. Trends, and yeah. and yeah. I think that's caused that sort of panic. So there are... Again, I don't think it's anybody in a bowler hat with, or rather a top hat with a, with a cigar sitting in a boardroom. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a kind of a rational response to immediate data that is having larger scale irrational results yeah. on a broader scale. Yeah. Which means that maybe we need to do things like take pharmaceuticals out of the system. So what would you say about my proposal to nationalise the whole global system of pharmacology? So I've thought about this in the past and... and, and then there's no problem with patents or anything like that. I agree. I mean, I, I think there are ways around it which don't require that you do something quite so extreme although it is true to say if you look at um, uh, I mean there's a there's a lot of research that's come out recently showing that um, that small-scale spin-offs from academic um, environments are probably the greatest locus of innovation today in in pharmaceutical treatments in, in computing and everything actually it, yeah, it seems I'm to sure be the case yeah. um, but uh, you know Nationalising it on a global scale, don't you, know. You could click a finger and do it, would you? <laughs> um, 
Again, there are, I suppose there are the unintended well, consequences. Since I which can't you have to take a finger about. and do it, what I, the 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 model that I think is sort of most attractive out of the ones that are practical is the prizes model, and and I, I'm surprised not to see more of that. You know, where people basically say, "Look, you come up with a really good um, fourth line antiretroviral, mm-hmm. and we'll give you fifteen billion dollars." Yeah, because that's that's what you'd make if you got a giant massive blockbuster you might get 50 mm-hmm. billion dollars off it but everybody's going to have to sort of tread lightly around your patent mm. and all this all stuff nonsense, yes. so look if you do it and it is binary either you've done it or you've not if you do it we'll just give you 15 billion dollars okay and you know and you, that's anybody, you go and get stock anybody market investment it. yeah you go and get mm. stock market investment you go and do everything that you normally would to chase the 15 billion dollar prize within a conventional market but just when you've done it, you have to give it to us and we'll give you $15 billion. It's kind of like NASA's getting stuff into space and to orbit, right? So it makes yeah. everyone competitive. They've, 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 yes, they've got the, the X prize and that sort of stuff, how yeah. to get a, yes. a rocket into space and we'll, we'll give you X million, whatever. But I mean, actually, what I don't know is... Um, is of course, setting goal policies would be interesting. Do, do we set, would this country care, for example, to set that policy for malaria? It probably wouldn't, well, or Chagas disease, or any of the other orphan diseases. So, wouldn't in we? Si- we still have the same problem there, wouldn't we? The, we'd still be focused on that, which you know, there'd be lots of um, anti-obesity drugs and things like that. Would the picture be that different? Well, so that's so that's the argument is that you then you start you start offering prizes for treatments for orphan diseases for diseases where there's no interest in people making money. But, but why would you offer those prizes? Well, because it's your taxpayer development charity, and then yeah, but you then know. I'll have LBC will be phoning up. Why are we giving money for these kiddies in Africa when our own kiddies? No, you know, you can imagine the, the you can imagine the call. Your LBC well, caller sounds a lot sicker than Charles Yes, that's a subset of the of the wider sort of dialogue about why do we why do we have foreign aid at all? You know? Exactly, and so but that actually, would be we're a, weird on foreign aid. I mean, we give more foreign aid than pretty much anyone around. Yeah, the Tories got caught into <laughs> pledging that by mistake. They won't make that mistake next time. Um, uh, they did very. They were very careful because somebody made a mistake in the um, in the foreign office and said, "You know, we can't. We've, we've actually got enough money to um, give the BBC World Service enough money for its trust so that you don't have to close down all these foreign language services." And I think, hey, said, shut up, shut up, shut yeah. up! Uh, don't say that. Um, That's such a disaster. It's really. Um, oh yeah. It's really interesting how I think there are. Maybe it's one of those ones where it's like like we've said many times. You know. Uh, uh, Something immeasurable, but that, but that is actually the true thing that you're trying to produce. Mm. I think that the kind of brand awareness you get for the UK abroad from something like the World Service is really not to be sniffed at. Mm. No, of course not. Did you see that there was a fantastic series of vox pops when Cameron went to India? And India is, I don't know, I mean, you know, I meet people from India and I just feel like my country is going to shit, you know, I mean, because you, just, you meet these people who are like, okay, we're all going to do tech um, degrees and PhDs and train as engineers and then we're going to set up this and then we're mm. going to set up that and now I'm running a business and my friend is running a business. Oh, you're a doctor, are you a PhD or an MBBS? And you mm. just go, oh, <laughs> you're so yeah. on the case. Yeah. Um, but they did a bunch of Vox Pops with David Cameron and they said, uh, do you know who this guy is? And they went, I don't know, he's from... Uh, Somewhere. So he's David Cameron, he's the Prime Minister of, of the United Kingdom. And what does that mean to you? And they go, um, I don't know. I mean, they're a pretty small business partner these days. Um, uh, yeah, it's nice. What, is he over here because um, he's hoping that we can give him some work? You know, <laughs> and it really was like that. Yeah. And you think, you know, a world service is a way of 
you know, just keeping the dream alive that you actually well, have that's, something well, that's, going for you. Well, well, well exactly. There are, there we are, do have something going for us. The BBC is, is as... Well, exactly. But as the, a, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't want to keep the dream wonderful. alive only for the purposes of the dream. <laughs> I mean, you want to keep the BBC there to sort of remind... But there are certain the, national the, myths that we need in order to have any cohesiveness as a nation at, at all. Um, something that I'm most proud of about the British is how actually they don't they don't actually have that much of a yeah, we're not bothered. demonstrative nationalistic bent. And really, they sort of they'll grumble a bit. There aren't you know, and well, there's a lot I'm of complaints to see that you're wearing our national costume today, Nick. Yes, so. well, yes. Uh, the, the, the bells, the, bell, the bells yeah. around my ankles are are chafing. <laughs> and the scrotum, exactly. The well, that's a problem. But but but, uh, but that's good. But on the other hand, though, there are certain subtle things like like the fact that you have the, a BBC and a BBC World Service. And frankly, something like Radio Three and Four, and just just things like that, which are subtle. And even if you don't listen to them, there's some. It, it speaks to the national consciousness in a way which, in one hand, is very fluffy and almost metaphysical. In the other way, if you got rid of it and everything really was simply owned by Mr. Murdoch, I think you would. Everybody would realise suddenly that they were a lot poorer for it. And I think maybe I don't know how. I don't know the extent to which Radio Four and Radio Three are part of that. But I think I mean increasingly. There's something really interesting that that has happened over the last kind of 30 or 40 years, I think, of the shifting demographic of the UK, but also the the shifting geography where what happens in the south is so different to what happens in the north. And that is, I think I detect in people uh, a, an, a, an, an admirable and optimistic worldwide perspective on poverty but less of an interest in immediate local poverty. And I think, actually, I, I don't know what I think about is it that, yet, but is, I really detect in myself... Is that true, I don't, I'm not more worried about people who are chronically unemployed and having a shit life in um, a, you know, a, a dead shit-building town in the north. I'm not sure that I am massively more concerned for their welfare than I am for the welfare of somebody in an ex-communist state in Eastern Europe or um, uh, uh, a country in Africa that is sort of, you know, recently... But are you sure? Because sure, sure, surely the cliché is some, again... L- I am L- 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 I'm not sure by how much. L- LBC caller says, this red Nose day, why are they giving all the money to the Africans? Why don't they give it to our, our, our hospitals and the poor people? That's the cliche call, isn't it? So it's almost the inverse. Surely the reason that the Red Nose Day has to keep make a, making a big fuss about saying, ooh, some of the money that we're going to give from our crisps that we're selling will be given to local charities. And to obesity and anti-salt charities. That was a disgrace that, that Stephen Fry and all those awful people oh. gave their name to Walker's 5P. That was strange, 5P. wasn't it? I wrote about that. On my blog. Oh yeah, you, you mentioned it, didn't you? That's a... And um, yeah, yeah, only only Al Murray replied. I suppose he's the only. No, I've met him and I've met Stephen mm. Fry, but not neither of them for particularly long. Mm. Um, I was surprised that Stephen Fry didn't. Does he do a lot of that sort of thing? He did that awful. He sold himself out completely for that coffee commercial. He does a lot of adver- he, he does a huge yeah. amount Coffee's of advertising. He know he does a huge amount of I advertising and everything. Are a bit bad, actually. No, he advertises. I really do think Christian. He advertises cheap and sure. He do- ad- oh, I didn't mean. But that's fine. Bad, I mean, he's happy to sell himself out for anything. He's happy to sell himself out for well, no, anything. But, you see, I don't think that doing any advert is automatically necessarily totally 
bad. So you're not on the Bill Hicks, you're off the <laughs> the vocals, suck yeah. my dick. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know... <laughs> not with these bells on. I don't think that... Um, I don't think that it's always bad. And I'm not, you know, I'm not some sort of crazed anti-corporate nut job. But, oh. but I do think... <laughs> I think crisps are bad, actually. I do love them, but they are bad. Yeah. And also, but promoting crisps are bad. And when you... I don't know... And putting just, them at the halo of the red... Well, I can't well, yeah, stand... Yeah, exactly, the excuse. Well, I, I really yeah. can't stand Comic Relief because of that. In too many people are economy, basking in its halo. Oh, Comic Relief is a... I'll pay off my guilt once every two years and then actually not do anything very useful for charity the rest of my life. No, I... I, I, well, I, I, I don't I, know that people have to do anything good for charity, but I think yeah. that... I think, with, I think when you're advertising Walker's Crisps, that is, you are actually taking a step into doing harm. And so the, you know, the ledger on benefits and harms from right. that um, is quite a complex one with some quite distant, intangible downsides about undermining public health campaigns. So how did that model respond? Are you allowed to say or was it a private correspondence? No, no, it was just on Twitter. Okay. Um, well, he just sort of said, yeah, you're right, it is a bit of a close one. Right. Was basically it. What it probably means is that the Walkers PR people are very good at convincing. Um, because I, I imagine they did I a very good spiel, so. and maybe maybe two or three days later, that well, actually, you know, but you it see, seemed I, okay at the I, time. I think again, um, you know, my expectations of individuals and corporations are slightly different. Um, I don't know enough about the way that Red Nose Day is, is organised, but. I think it's a bit of a shame that they got involved with that, but I suppose probably they just go, look, fuck it, crisps are a legal product. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like shotguns. Um, you know, they are legally available for sale. I mm. think it, it makes me sad because I think about the desperate efforts of underfunded health promotion teams trying to get kids to eat more fruit and veg and mm. and how how tragically overexcited they are when they get like a little piece of a, a little <laughs> yeah. bit of local newspaper coverage for their new initiative and it's the same thing for all these initiatives when we you know we saw the the the, the slightly tatty posters uh, up in the obstetrics ward at, in, saying you know ladies why not try breastfeeding the, the other day we were reading through mother and parent magazines every second Every second page is a full-page advert for formula, yeah. basically intimating why it's as good as or better than breast milk, although not quite doing that because they, like they, they have to kind of skim on the WHO. I like that advert on TV at the moment with all the babies looking happy. So, do I look like I'm not receiving enough nutrients? And then tiny letter at the bottom, probably not receiving enough nutrients. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean, when you look at... I mean, it's because of what we're doing. This Every realm you look into, you, you find these sorts of issues... Mm-hmm. Like this, and it, it seems it, one can just become very depressed about it, I suppose. So I'll have uh, some of your SSRI. Yeah, right. it's okay. At least with adverts, it's clearly labelled, you know. I mean, a bit like the thing with, like, you know, boots have shot themselves in the cock, mm. and, and sensible people don't take their utterances seriously because they sell quack meds. That's yeah. a bit sexist. They might have shot themselves in the vagina. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. So, um, you know, boots have shot themselves in the vagina. And, yes. Um, <laughs> by selling quack medicines and that undermines the, the credibility of the references. Actually, adverts, we know they're adverts at least. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes wonder if um, if policing adverts paradoxically doesn't do more harm than good in the same way that prohibition of, of recreational drugs can paradoxically do more harm than good because there are things that people want to do and say which they're forbidden to do and say and so they bulge out and they just do and say them anyway but in more destructive right. ways. Yes. It's like, you know, quacks aren't allowed to to make to produce adverts in which they say 
my amazing quack remedy will totally cure all your cure cancer. All of your yeah. cancer. But what they can do is pay columnists, give them holidays, give them ready-made, so boost them up, whatever. So then you get, actually, the more unpleasant outcome of the quack columnist in yes. the Sunday magazine. Writes a column saying, these quack remedies are really fantastic and we'll do X, Y, and Z. You know, and you get this kind mm. of bleed-through. And I, I often wonder if maybe a bullshit box <laughs> might not be a better solution. A bit like a sort of shooting gallery for heroin addicts that you see in <laughs> Holland. You know, right. like a, a, a shit-shooting gallery. Like a box at the bottom of the advert that is clearly labelled, everything in this box is bollocks. Mm-hmm. And people just can can go for it. They can really they can they can really flop it out and wave it around and just yes. and say all the things that they really want to say, which they don't have to prove. And it's there. They've been allowed to get it. Out they have of to have the stamp. Saying, it's just got a stamp saying this is total bollocks. I have uh, some some old Jonathan Swift books from the beginning of the century, um, a lot of the previous century, obviously. And in the back there are adverts, just completely unregulated, like Beecham's powders, which yeah. cures all ailments. And it's just a pleasure to read. But it's them. honest and it's buy and beware. Because I yes. think the problem now is people look at adverts and they go, oh, well, they wouldn't be allowed to say that if it wasn't true. Yes. Exactly. Essentially, if you just said, no, no, they're allowed to say whatever they want. It's all bollocks. Well, that's... that's all you know, yes. it's all well, that, I quite like that. I mean... And that's why people... That's why, paradoxically, companies want regulation. Yeah, well, I have, a, I have some, okay. some arguments. Well, you know, I argue about with, with intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Which is why you have to say that. <laughs> um, I, I, it's basically... Isn't that... It's one, of those in, it's one of those irregular verbs, isn't it? Yeah. It's like... You know, it's my intellectual property. Yeah. It's your intellectual property. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so basically, the whole, the whole, the whole point about it is, you know, when when some some somebody campaigns against ridiculous DRM or stupid overextension of copyright or a, a silly, um, you know, where, where somebody will go to to um, take that Mickey Mouse off the off the cancer ward wall. You yes. didn't have the rights to do it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm get a bit Trotskyite about it. I say no, no, no. Let them fill their boots. I want them to create the worst DRM you can ever imagine. I want them to make it almost impossible to have any sort of cultural discourse without the boots stamping on your face. And then they'll be... Go into Phil Collins' house and hand in the tenor yes. and put his song And on. then we'll have the Tahrir Square moment. Was, yeah. Whereas well, if, if you... So this is what the trots um, had in mind for a long time. You exactly, know? but if they you were, carefully regulate... undercover trot groups exactly. who wanted to hasten the revolution. Well, that I kind of... Really, he's, he's with them. Yeah. If you carefully regulate it <laughs> and sort of say, oh, can we have an agree... Let, 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 let's speak with government and try and have a few exemptions from this Copyright Act and allow people to do this much for a search and maybe another few words. No, screw it. Fuck it. Let allow me, them to do what they want. Exactly. But, so that, you know, it depends on, on whether you have an interest in the industry's survival. Because I'm now, you know, I'm now in a situation where I'd quite like publishing not to shoot itself in the cock in the same way that the music industry has. Mm-hmm. Because... Oh, know, publishing is doing that as you speak. I make about 40p on a book. So, you mm. know, it's if, if I sell 10,000 books, then that's four grand. And that's, mm. you know, that's all right. And... Um, it's really, really sad watching them do it all over Because <laughs> with the music, it's really interesting. I, you know, I basically don't buy... I, 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 would, I wouldn't even occur to me to buy music right now. Like, I've got a shitload of vinyl, mm-hmm. and I still buy records occasionally. My desire to have music that I can carry around on the go is not so great that I download MP3s, and I'm saying mm. not going to bother to rip CDs. Mm. I did buy some MP3s, a while ago and then the process of trying to move them from one device to another was such a fucking offensive waste of my time uh, iTunes is lovely for god's sake oh. 
And basically, I thought, all right, I can download pirate copies of the stuff that I've already paid for. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, if I do that, I'm never going to, you know, I'm, yeah. I will never, you know, I value my time, not financially, but I value my time more highly than anything else I have. Well, John, what was the quote from Was it game when you were the, the, the better customer experience? What was the... Well, there's... The, a, there's, a, there's um, it's in computing. Within video gaming, obviously, the DRM of video games has got to this point where the most ridiculous was Ubisoft last year introduced as always-on DRM. So it would constantly check that you had an internet connection connecting to their servers as you were playing. So you could use that it connection dropped, or, not, yeah. or, or if your connection dropped at all. Yes, if your connection dropped mid-game, it would just quit out. You just quit out the game, <laughs> and and they got to this point where if you downloaded, where if you downloaded the game illegally and installed it, it played fine. On your yeah, own yeah. Train. So what happened was Gabe Newell, the uh, the guy who, who, in, who uh, at the top of Fat Valve, one of the big companies. Well, I used to use I used to make a lot of music, and I used to use Cubase, and I bought a copy of Cubase. But I was constantly leaving the fucking dongle. And the dongle, right? <laughs> so it's I just downloaded a pirate. Copy well, exactly, and, and so, 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 so Gabe Newell says, who, who runs? Who, and he's a guy who runs. He's a pirate. The, pirate, the pirates are offering a better customer service yeah. than we are. Then the pirates should win. That's what he said. They but should also, win. There's, a, there's a long-term reputation issue here because I, you know, I, I have no idea what whether downloading MP3s is still as as shit a customer experience as it was when I last did it a couple of years ago mm-hmm. but I'm not going to waste time finding no, no, it no. you know I just, I just you know it's dead to me it's, it's, well know. I mean that, that, that's, that's the general problem isn't it people have you, you won't you're not going to give it another go are you you're just going to say well that's it really. not in a million years and actually the good thing about books is even if they are pricing Kindle books slightly stupidly the Kindle mm-hmm. system is fantastically well thought through it syncs across every device you have yeah you know, it's really except really, really the Kindle really book. Is, the Kindle book is costing more than the paper book, which is just you, well, know, you, you don't need a degree in economics. There's, well, they're screwing it up badly, but that's but that's the publishers. Well, yeah. publishers have a lesson they can easily learn, which is, and it's becoming in, in in gaming, it's finally getting a voice. And I've been campaigning this for years, and finally, developers are saying the same: is that piracy improves sales. And it just mm. seems to be the case. And obviously, well, if you've got shareholders, you can't yeah. say that out loud because your shareholders will demolish you. But and if publishing can get that, can go, okay, if people pirate my book, I will sell more copies as a result. If they can get that now before it's too late. That may or may not be true, though, because it's so... Like, why do, Why would people buy books if they could get the full experience of the book by downloading I will. I will guarantee to you <laughs> that if you want to write your next book, okay, not the one you're doing now, mm. and you say to your publisher, screw you, you say to all the people on the Bad Science blog, I want to write a new book, yeah, yeah, and I want I want you to get. I'm not going to tell you how much. Mm-hmm. I want you to. Well, hey, it's too late now. I want you to basically. I want there to be democratic patronage. I need money to do it in my spare time. Whatever, um, you'll get more than four thousand um, pounds per ten thousand copies. That may or may not be true. I, I don't so. know. Well, they recently there's something called. The I, humble, I, I will. I'd be prepared the, to the take humble, a bet for real money on you that that would happen. The humble indie bundle is a huge phenomenon in independent gaming recently. They, they put together um, oh games God, that are a year this. old yeah, yeah. and they've made in um, games that are already a year old already had their main sales. Yeah, they, no made, DRM. they made three no, and DRM free they made three million dollars of which a million went to charity and they the, these independent developers there's one or two people in their bedrooms including right? the amnesty in their coffee shops. Yes they, were, they each took home hundreds of thousands of dollars from, from year old games on pay what you want uh, far in excess of anything and you know this is putting um, uh, pub- major publishers to shame and to confusion because pay what you want and also you, uh, yes a 2D boy who did World of Goo they had 87, 85% piracy rate they worked out which they were absolutely fine with um, people missed the point when they announced those figures they're like which is great it's, it's helping us 
and then they said um, we're having an amnesty you can now pay if you want to pay for this game mm. since you pirated it you're welcome to and they got hundreds of thousands of dollars came in my, my point my point is this for, for 400 years or so actually some and, and in publishing since this, this, this since this station is Guild and Statute of Hand, we have had sorry to use more Trotsky language, <laughs> we've had false consciousness um, mm. embedded in us for two two hundred and fifty years or so, which is people do not want to be involved with their culture and they will not foster it unless you pay the middleman the tithe, who will you who will basically by strong arming them will, uh, well, will I, do it. I think the death of the middleman will be the interesting bit, won't it? I mean, it's, it's clear yeah, to... It, it people is. are going to continue to be musicians. Yes. People are going to continue to make music, partly actually because being in a band gets you a girlfriend or a boy. Yes. Or, mm-hmm. you know, boys think or, because, lady, yeah. or because, frankly, playing, playing in a band is fun. Yeah. Playing instruments is fun. Yeah. That's, that's the point. Human expressivity writing will have a talent. Dr- writing books actually makes you extremely unhappy for a really <laughs> long period of time. Oh, no, I, d- really, I, d- I, d- I did it one. It does a big shit in the mouth of your life. Oh, really? It was one of the first internet and education books that came yeah. out in like ninety ninety three or ninety four, and like it was it was fun. But even at that time, I said, "Look, anybody, any teacher who wants to just photocopy the hell out of it, it's yeah. fine, and there's no problem." But what I tell you, what I find weird actually, I mean, aside from the sort of the strictest sort of copyright intellectual property, the thing I find weird is when people get uppity about ideas, because like really commonly, I will see that somebody has written an article or given a speech including recently sort of some fairly prominent people where you can see it's just it's, it's your lines mm. that they're speaking yeah. or it's your analysis that they're writing yeah. and sometimes it's so close that people sort of send me emails and go mm. this is just plagiarising your stuff aren't you? are you going to do anything about this it's really out of order and I kind of think well on the one hand like the only so the only thing that I'd want a credit for on anything is so that people can find more of the exactly. same. It's a link. Right. Well, that's that, all I want. Yeah. But if I'm losing that, fine, whatever, because I suppose I'm in a weird position. I'm a campaigning writer. So actually, it's not that I feel a little bit nervous about people copying my stuff or using my ideas. I actively want well, people to what well, specifically want people well, for you, to what you, the, the phrase is what, what's more important me or the meme and uh, yeah. the meme wins and I, I think I have very but it's only that it's only that like if, if it has me as an index feature on the secondary material yeah. then at least there's a chance that, that like my other memes yeah, yeah, well or, exactly or rather the other people's memes which I am channeling because no, it's not exactly. as if you know it's not as if you invented evidence-based medicine you know, no. but the Ian well, Chalmers post- Simon Sharma invented it right? yes, Ian exactly. Chalmers that I am channeling then yeah. goes out to you know exactly. to the next person to reach well them. my point about democratic patronage is I think as you as you've gotten rid of the middleman as you bring people closer to the people who are producing their culture the more happy they are about funding it because they are not funding the coke habit of the guy at the top of EMI who yeah. then will eventually trickle down a few pennies to the, his basically his music slaves you're, you're paying the person directly to do more of the stuff that you like now this is not theoretical this is actually already being tested in a number of things like the Kickstarter project for example um, where somebody said yeah. we want to get a lot of orchestras mm. to record public domain music which we can then distribute for free because yeah. and and they said we want to we, we need ten thousand dollars to do this just to the general public can you give us money and i think the last count they were given eighty thousand dollars sometimes sometimes having spare money kicking around can allow people to do things for for the broader good that you wouldn't have necessarily anticipated 
if I won the lottery tomorrow, well, actually, no, if somebody said, here's 50 grand, mm -hmm. um, then I, you know, if I could, if, 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 I had a, if I had a PA, you know, if I had a, if I had a nerd manservant, <laughs> um, then there are lots and lots and lots of things that I could sort out. Mm. I'm not sure I could be asked to, um, to write a list on Kickstarter. But are and, you not tempted you know, to then embrace the celebritisation of yourself to be invited onto Comic Relief to do something to actually, and then you'd be in the position of having a PA, and then you'd be in the position. Of but how would I, how would that manifest a PA? Well, you'd be, is, you want, if is that the spell? <laughs> yes, if you're in a position now where you can push your celebrity. You're on TV. You're a known face. You can push that further. Yeah, look, look at Doctor. Look money. at Professor Cox. But how do you make more money by doing that? You make more money by doing ads. You know, actually going on telly doesn't make you a huge amount of money, and it comes with a huge downside. I mean, I, I have no. I've got no massive objection to being on television, but I've, I've no major ambition to be famous. Right. Like it's not what I want, mm -hmm. and I can see, a, I can see a tremendous downside. I mean, I've you know I've stood on Charing Cross Road at two o'clock in the morning, drunk, chatting to a mate who is like super duper famous, and it just looks like a fucking pain in the ass to me. <laughs> it's a constant stream of people coming up and hassling you, right. you know, and that you know that's a drag. So. I'm not. I, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, you're you're I'm probably, sure in, the, that, you're not, probably in the position know, where you, sure you quite that. like you. You're you're a, you're well enough known that you can get your memes out there, but not be hassled at two in the morning and cross well, the road. Actually, I you know if it's ever offered to you, I would strongly recommend my own very sort of modest level of context dependent microfame <laughs> context dependent microfame sounds good well you've sort of got that I, in your gaming yeah, no, exactly. in the gaming realm so this is like that. Danny yeah. O'Brien's line on this the great yeah. NTK man is yes. um, you know in the past everyone was famous for 15 minutes now everyone's famous for 15 people yes um, you know I, the, our microfame I think probably translates into um, more people than you'd expect come up to us specifically to have conversations that we're probably going to be quite interested in having. Yeah. That's true, actually, that's yes. the major I mean, If I'm in the right the place, then people will come up to me. I had this little unsettling when they start talking about your personal life to you, but... Yeah, yeah, that's weird. Um, but but, it, but it's genuinely, that's genuinely because I share too much of my personal life in the public space. It's my own fault, and, and that, that's kind of, kind of enjoy that. But, yeah, it's... it's, it's that is it's a weird one. It's, 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 it's easy to forget that when you tweet something, there are lots of people reading it. Mm. Well, over Twitter's got its own weird sort of strange thing anyway, because also people sort of march into your bedroom as well. Well, we're well, talking about marching into... I mean... Uh, we really uh, need to wrap uh, up. Well, so just as we wrap up, here, here's one interest. Here's, here's one question. You allowed us to come into your studio today to do the recording. You didn't say, let's meet in some semi-public sphere because you may be axe murderers. Yeah, Why? But I know you're not a dick. Maybe I am. <laughs> well, the, what's, what's the worst that, that could happen? I could be an axe murderer. But we've. Uh, well, I could we've be Gillian McKeith. Yes, <laughs> that's the worst. We could transmogrify into one <laughs> Mega McKeith. <laughs> Think what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, it seems to happen. Show me your poo. <laughs> and, and on that note, perhaps we should say thank you to the to the good doctor. Thanks well, very much. Yeah, no pleasure. Um, and now. And now to eat. Yes. Right here. Thank you so much. And we'll um, look forward to seeing you at the data centre where we can show you the generator. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm going to press the big off button. You, you will. I'll make sure you're on a day where you can. 
Paul can Lee. you not press off on my website which is hosted there that'd be good okay, okay. God, I got an email from Richard Stallman the other day we host, oh, wow. we host him I know I know yes. I was touched by greatness I did you say Linux instead of GNU slash Linux <laughs> isn't I, that great he, he's very like, angry he, he, he interviewed, we interviewed Richard Stallman the other but the car, you know, it's the it's the poster child of open source and mm-hmm. let it go out there and be free oh my god, god. Don't oh, say open source, the poster child of open source he okay, said no, free software free software don't say open source oh no and then but it's also because it's not protected by branding it's the focus of yeah. so much like you know squabbling over people using it's, the wrong it's, words. it's quite yeah. funny I mean we, really can, we when we get support tickets from it's a support ticket from Richard Stallman saying please enable my logs or something like that it's, it's, it's very fun to be giving technical support <laughs> but, I'd be uh, terrified dude just could, that he'd start singing at me or yes. showing his feet there we he's are. a very interesting man ta-ta excellent Thanks. cheers, cheers. bye bye